This morning, uh, as we continue to look at the futility of life without Christ, uh, as we continue our study in the book of Ecclesiastes, this morning we'll look at chapter 4, verses 4 through 13. Verse 4, chapter 4, Ecclesiastes. Then I saw that all toil and skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool, the fool holds his hands and eats his own flesh. Folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold, cold, fold is, a threefold, threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne. Though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after wind. Sends the reading of God's word. Um, Ecclesiastes, uh, by way of reminder, is an autobiographical, an autobiographical sketch um, as regards... Uh, Koalef's quest for ultimate good um, in the meaning of life. Uh, one feature of the book uh, is the repeated emphasis on vanity, um, and that is uh, by use of the phrase under the sun, which is a humanistic, naturalistic um, perspective of life on this earth. Uh, we've seen the pessimism, uh, we've seen the despair um, sketched out in very broad terms. Um, and then answered from a theocentric, that is a God-centered, a sovereign Lord perspective um, of life. So seeing as we have, and we will continue to see um, these very broad terms, they're, they're revisited, they're repeated over and over again throughout the book. And here this morning, um, koaleth, which again is the, the Hebrew uh, word for preacher, um, he returns to the subject of toil. And toil is not a bad thing. Toil simply means the work of one's hands. Um, having already stated back in chapter 2, verse 24, that work is good. It's a gift from God. We read there in chapter 2, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. In other words, beloved, work is good. Amen? Work is good. Work is a gift from Almighty God. And its fruits, the writer says, 
are to be enjoyed. The fruits of our labors to be enjoyed. But like all, all other of God's blessings, work can also become distorted by sin. And here now he, he points out uh, that much of our work, he says, is motivated by envy, or, or that is rivalry. And that is a, a sinful desire to get ahead in life by getting ahead of other people. Driven by covetousness is really the idea. So uh, of the uh, many things that we're all tempted um, to covet in this life, be it another's abilities, uh, another's good looks, uh, we're mostly inclined to covet um, that which money can buy. Would you agree with that? And if we accumulate everything we covet, then someone else will envy us. And then the cycle continues. So a man-centered, naturalistic worldview is limited to see work as either drudgery, which is to be avoided, or an obsession to fulfill one's covetous desires, making it, to be sure, vanity and striving after Wind. So notice then in verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after wind. So he says in effect here, you know, I thought about work. I, I, saw, I thought about all the aspects of skill involved in that work. And it's the envy of one's neighbor. Okay, and envy here. Uh, means zeal. And when you have zeal towards another in this context, it means you're zealous of your neighbor, making them now a jealous rival. A jealous rival. Now, there's two interpretations to be considered here uh, regarding this verse. And, and the first is that man's hard work, his skill, skillful labors... Um, in life are in vain because while he works hard, he's diligent and he accomplishes great things and he has a great deal of success. The result is not thanks and appreciation, but the result is envy, the envy of his neighbor. Therefore, it's vain. Okay, that's one interpretation. I don't think that's the right interpretation because work itself is not vain. Just because another person envies you for your success. Uh, their vanity makes them the fool. Or the vanity of their envy, I should say, makes them the fool. Hard work is not vanity. Hard work, as we've already read, is a gift from God. So it is vain if they envy you, but that's their problem. So work is not vain. So there's another uh, much more probable um, interpretation of this verse, and that is that man's toil and his skill in work are vain when what's behind his work or that which is the drive of his work is for the sake of self-centered rivalry against his neighbor. In other words, they're incredibly driven by their work because they see it as a demonstration of their superiority over and above their neighbor. So they pursue this task with great diligence, and it's not for the sake of the task itself, 
but it is for the purpose of proving themselves better than others. This is the restless pursuit to outclass other people. That's the idea. So their toil and their skill, their God-given gifts, become the stage for their self-centered pride. It's an exhibition of their egomaniacal mind. So their motivation here is is the drive. It's the drive for self-exaltation. That's the idea. So work is vanity when the drive or the motivation behind it is for the sake of rivalry. To make other people feel small around you. That is vanity. And striving after win. So this self-serving competitiveness... Um, it drives the individual to, to be better than everyone else. And it destroys, therefore, the God-given meaning of work, and that's what makes it vain. So we, we, we exhibit our skill. We exhibit uh, the toil of our hands, the successes we have um, in, in our profession, all for the sake of others to be amazed or for them to marvel at you. That's the idea. And that indeed turns the purpose of work into vanity. Uh, one commentator, William Brown, writes this, and I quote, Envy inspires competition. Oh, I put it up there, good. And thus twists the noble sense of vocation into an exercise in rivalry, into an inward, or upward and onward quest in the pursuit of dominance, leading even to violence. This, he goes on to say, flies in the face of the great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, end quote. You know, this kind of envy, fair to say, it drives our business world today. Sidney Gray Danis is quoted as saying, in the corporate world, people will climb over corpses to reach the top, end quote. Look at Proverbs 27, verse 4. Wrath is cruel. Anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? So this envy or this zeal for one's own achievements, one's own glories, uh, one's recognition is simply a drive to be noticed. That's vain. That's striving after the wind because it's contrary to God's will for our work. So the work given to us is is not for the sake of glorifying ourselves and exhibiting our skills up and over above others, but it's for the glory of God. For the sake of carrying out His will, the work He's given us on His earth. That's what our work is for. Because it shows us that God's wisdom is above all. And we see this as a wise pursuit, and it's for the glory of God. You know, we learned in chapter 2 that by good, God-honoring work, we will glorify God, number one. We'll provide for our own needs, number two. And we'll fulfill our purpose in the world as God has gifted us to do. So we're, we're, we're ordered from the beginning to extend dominion. We've been given dominion over the world. 
So none of which is discovered in the envy rivalry perspective we see here in verse 4. So we can conclude work, work is not about excelling so as to outshine others. This is our drive. It's to, it's to outshine other people, but to serve other people. So to turn it into rivalry or, you know, cr- crawling over or climbing up and over, you know, corpses to reach the top um, certainly destroys the purpose of our existence as regards work, toil. It's vanity. So that, the preacher says, is the first lesson that we learn here about vanity and grasping after the wind regarding work. And, and the second thing is that you know, although you might think yourself to be the best, and maybe you are, you won't be for long. There was a time, let's think about the boxing world for a moment, shall we? There was a time when Mike Tyson, it was thought to be he was unbeatable. That he wasn't even human. And then Buster Douglas proved him wrong. One night in Japan. He was the best for a while, and, and you know, also, if, if that's your drive, um, you'll soon realize that other people in the world who have this mindset of rivalry will be gunning for you. So it's vanity. And the goal of work, again, it's not to feed the ego. It's not to put ourselves on a pedestal above other people to try to outdo them. It's not to lord it over other people. It's for the sake of mutual cooperation, not individual competition. Mutual cooperation. So the the goal is not to be the best so as to outdo others, make yourself shine, look at me. The goal is to be the best that we can be with what God has given us with our skills, gifted as we are, for his glory and the good of others. That's the idea. It's to to, to develop the the limits of our potential. Praying, asking, Lord, make me to be the best I can be with what you've given me for your glory and, and the good of others. Because isn't it obvious that God has not distributed gifts to everybody evenly? So to, pr- to play this rivalry envy game is to set a trap for yourself. Frustration will set in in your attempt to shine or outshine everyone else. And there's frustration because there's always someone else jockeying for the same position. There's always someone who's more gifted, someone who's more intelligent. They can sing better, they can build better, they can do better. They can outrun you. You can run a 4-3-40 and someone will come along like Bo Jackson who ran a 4-1-something. <laughs> it's like impossible. But he did it. There's always somebody better. This can apply to men in their vocation. This can apply to women in their homes and raising their children. This, look at, look at junior high school. It starts in junior, doesn't it start in junior high? <laughs> I think it does. Even pastors in the ministry. I heard Alistair Begg this week. He says, 
You've never been in a room with more insecure people unless you're in a room with 200 pastors. <laughs> you know, I'm convinced that that's why so many guys in ministry blog in our day. There's some guys that need to blog because God's given them the mind to blog about everything. There's some guys that have no business blogging. And I'm one of those guys. That's why I don't blog. Someone actually uh, took Dale Carnegie's quote of the past that says, quote, any fool can criticize, condemn, and complain, and most fools do. Okay, they've updated that quote to say this, any fool can blog, and most fools do. So, so work here in context to a man's envy for his neighbor is vanity and it's striving after the wind. Again, we ought to pray, Lord, enable me to progress to the fullest according to your will, according to your purpose for your glory. Amen? All right. That's one aspect of work that's vain. The other aspect of work that's vain is trying to avoid it. Trying to avoid it. So in contrast to the one who strives to outshine everyone else is the one who tries to escape work. Verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. And fool here refers to stupidity. Responding to the rat race, if you will, in this way, laziness is a fool. The lazy person is stupid. Because fools always lurch to another extreme. And here they fold their hands and they eat their own flesh. So among many of his stupid choices, number one, he's lazy. The scripture is very clear. It is dumb to be lazy. Amen. It is dumb. So he's described here as folding his hands as compared to people who are busy with their hands. Working. They're active. So this is a word picture of inactivity. In Scripture, it describes a lazy man, like uh, people who refuse to work, who are able to work in our day, who leech off tax dollars. I am sorry to say I know Christians who are like this. Able to work who don't work. It's one thing to be able to work and not be able to have a job at the moment. It's another thing to be able to work and refuse to work. To be able to work and refuse to work. You become a leech. A leech has two friends. Give, give. He folds his hands and eats his own flesh. This is not depicting cannibalism. But in his laziness, he starves to death. The body needs proper nourishment. The body will turn in on itself. It's like a bear who hibernates in the winter. His body feeds off the fat already stored. It's already been consumed. So he who opts out of the workforce ends up consuming himself. Look at Proverbs 6. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little, notice this, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So a little folding of the hands, it starts out with little surrenders 
to a life of ease. Little surrenders to a life of slothfulness. Look at Proverbs 24. I love this one. I paused, or I passed, by the field of a sluggard. And he obviously paused because this is what he observes. Okay, by, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns, the ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. This is the lazy person's sloppy yard and cluttered home. If you're able to get in their home, you've got to step over a bunch of junk. There are yards overgrown. There's weeds everywhere. I have neighbors on my street like this. I don't believe a Christian's home should look like this, personally. Then I saw and I considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber. And again, want like an armed man. So it's vanity, he says, to think that one can prosper in this life without working hard. You know, this is like sitting around waiting to win the lottery. (laughs) Lazy people drive me crazy. This This is thought without substance. This is a guy who sits around daydreaming. You know, the little cloud over his head? You know what's up there? Nothing. It's empty. So slothfulness is vanity. It is striving after the, after the wind. Man, quite simply, was created to work. And you can only find satisfaction in, in a job well done. You ever given a task? You work hard, your back hurts or whatever, your hands, your mind. But yet when the task is completed, how do you feel? Oh, Good. I spent one simple hour yesterday washing all the windows in the back of our house as my wife sat in the backyard reading magazines, which I'm glad because she outworks me in everything. So it makes me feel kind of good to do something she refuses to do, which is a task of mine, and I can watch her sit around like I sit around most of the time as she serves me. All that to say, when I was done, I sat down. It was like, ah, that feels good because it looks good. I love washing window washers. I love it. It's like mowing the yard. There's a sense of accomplishment. Fresh cut grass. You get the little wheel marks in there, you know. Feels good, looks good, smells good. This is work. It's a good thing. The fool who folds his hands, he eats his own flesh. He eats up his savings. He'll eat up his own soul. Laziness, slothfulness. So being made in the image of God, we're called to work because God works. He never ceases to work. You know, fools demand A's without studying. That's what they do. They they demand food without working. It's the give me, give me mind. And they they want trophies without practicing. They don't show up for practice. Their team wins. They want a trophy. They don't deserve a trophy. He'll not work for himself. He expects handouts. You know, we've, we've developed a society like this in our country, unfortunately. 
It's the mentality of entitlement. May it not be so in the church. When someone has a true need, we help. Amen? If a man refuses to work, what does the Bible say to the church? Then he don't eat. Manipulation. Okay, here now a pause for wisdom of of a balanced view in contrast to those two extremes. Verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. So the writer here understands that there's more responsibilities in life than than a man's vocation. Verse 6 is a brief, uh, pithy statement that imparts wisdom and understanding, otherwise known as a proverb. Okay, and that is there are, there, there are other things that claim our attention besides the work of our hands. The man in verse 4 was driven to have both his hands full, always at work for the sake of rivalry, appearing to be bigger and better and greater and grander than his neighbor. The slothful man in verse 5 has both hands empty. So here we have a call to a balanced life. Amen? Call to a balanced life. There's to be the rhythm of work and rest in life. You're called to work? Work hard. You're called to rest? Rest well. So there should be this this rhythm of pace in our lives, working hard with times of recuperation, refreshment, and rest. You know, we need the Holy Spirit to help us in this. Because much of this has to do with finding our contentment with God in Christ. Because if work becomes your God, you're way out of balance. And if slothfulness rules your life, you've staggered. And you've fallen into a grave, soon to be buried. (laughs) So we all need a growing relationship with our Lord, amen? Because compliments, oh, you're so great, you're better than everybody else. They'll never satisfy your soul. Compliments will never satisfy your soul. And rebuke itself will not cause the lazy man to stay the course of diligence. You can beat him until he's black and blue with metaphorical stripes. Chastisement, rebuke, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Not him, not him. So, verse 6, quietness here has to do with tranquility. Tranquility. It's It's not rest in the sense of doing nothing, although this afternoon I'll sit in my chair and do nothing. And that will be very delightful. So this, this, this is rest from our labors so that we can also attend to other business in life. Your marriage. Your children. Dads should not work so hard that they don't take their children up in their lap and love them and hug them and hold them. And so on. We're called to worship our Lord. There's devotion in our lives, surrendered to the Lord, ministering to the body of Christ. We can only minister to the body of Christ if we show up and gather with the body of Christ. In other words, it's not to be so wrapped up in our work that we neglect um, those closest to us or, or that we neglect cultivating relationships, family, friends, body of Christ, and so on. 
would be applicable to us. Now, without this balance, now he returns to this under-the-sun perspective in verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. In other words, there's no end to the toil of the greedy person because the organ of desire is never satisfied and the organ of desire is the eye. Never satisfied. He's amassed great wealth. That's the picture. And yet there's no satisfaction as he looks over it all. You know, Solomon has already told us those things can't satisfy. It's vanity. So he gets caught in this vicious cycle and there's no end to his toil. This is really the, uh, a picture of the greed of the miser. Greed of the miser. Grasping after riches for oneself here. Not wanting to share the wealth with his neighbor. Not even a son here. Not even family. So he's alone in his labor with no one else in view. No partners does he want in his work? No family members, no son, no brother at his side, chooses to be alone. He wants to reap all the benefits of his labors. Miser. The Webster's Dictionary, this is an old 1852 or whatever year it was, definition of miser. One who in wealth makes himself miserable by the fear of poverty. has so much. You know, that's why you read of these guys when the big crash we had here a few years ago. Billionaires lost a billion or two, but they still had four. And a guy goes and jumps in front of a train. Sad. Then there's the godly theocentric antidote to these extremes, and that is don't isolate yourself from others. Okay, so compare now the selfish, solitary person's life with that of a person who has companionship. Verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. A far superior life in contrast to this sad scenario is community. God designed it this way, amen? Community. We're God's temple. We're his family. We're the household of faith. And we're called to invest our lives with one another. Forge relationships. Spend time talking to one another. And you won't, if you don't, initiate these relationships within the body of Christ. Amen? There are some people who are shy. So shy people have to be very cognizant of of having to engage to to cultivate this kind of relationship. And then we as the body who perhaps aren't shy ought to be on the lookout for those who are shy. And then engage them and hopefully hopefully draw um, draw them in. So here you can look at this in, in the context of men and women thriving together. You, you, you might reject verse 9, but you cannot, divide, you cannot um, s- simply deny it. Two are better than one. 
And then he illustrates this, that drawing on, on common travel of his day. This is, how he, this is how he illustrates it. Verse 10, For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who's alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold, a threefold, man, I'm tongue twisted over that one today. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. You know, you might fall into a ravine when you travel alone. Break a limb. You lie there and rot in the sun. It's a graphic illustration. (laughs) Also, sleeping at night while you travel, you may have to sleep in the open. Temperatures can plummet at night. It's better to cuddle up. We went camping. When did we do that camping thing when the kids were small? We bought all this camping gear and decided to go in the winter up to like Julian or something. And it was a two-room tent. Roxy and me and the kids... It was so cold. Do you remember that? We all got under the blanket together and put the kids between us and it's like a little oven. (laughs) Woe to the one who's alone if he falls into a pit. Woe is the one who has to sleep in an open field. Woe is to the one who is robbed. Two are better than one. If If a thug comes up on you, two can throw him down if need be. Hopefully. And three is even better. Jesus sent out 70, two by two. Jesus, our Lord, traveled as a group of 13. Our Lord and his 12 disciples. So scripture is actually opposed to the rugged individual. As much as I love the spaghetti westerns of Clint Eastwood, the loner, that's not real life, right? That's not real life. Two are better than one. Metaphorically speaking, if you fall into error, if you fall into sin, if you fall into trouble and trial, there's someone there to lift you up out of our erroneous thinking, hopefully, or out of trouble. So when a person grows cold and isolates him or herself, you know, whether there's grief or sorrow or sadness, Uh, We are to come along our brothers and sisters. I mean, that's Galatians 6, 1 and 2. We're we're called to bear our own load for sure, but we're also called to bear one another's load and burden. You may need to be warmed by the fires of encouragement, so to speak, as people fall into disappointment or discouragement. You know, a man wanted to teach his son this lesson, so he took a bundle of sticks and he bound them up. He said, son, go ahead, break this. Nothing you can do. Then he unbound them and gave him one stick at a time. And he broke every single stick. That's the idea. We gather together. So whether it's, the, whether it's marriage, whether it's family, the church itself, it's community that is better. Well, here then in verses 13 to 16, now there's some complexities here. There's too many competitive interpretive details to wade through here as far as who's the king. Uh, You know, uh, he was poor, but then he becomes a king and all, all of these details. Okay, here's the general picture. Number one, you're never too old to take advice 
And number two, regardless of how popular you are at present, someone will take your place. Okay? Verses 13 to 16. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. He went from prison to the throne. Though in his own kingdom he had been born poor, I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind." First, it's better to lead with a teachable spirit than to be too proud to take advice. That's the first principle. So the preacher contrasts here an old and foolish king with a poor, wise youth. Right here. The king is old, but he's become foolish because he doesn't take advice anymore. In his earlier days, he listened to his advisors. Now he refuses to listen. And now he's of no use to the people. In Israel, the old were considered wise. And certainly the king should be wise. But here he no longer takes advice. Now this stands, beloved, as a warning to older Christians, does it not? You know, we, we usually think that gray hair automatically brings wisdom. Oftentimes it does. But that is not a universal principle of truth. Trust me. The older we get, sometimes we become very opinionated because we become very settled in how we think and what we think. And that's not always bad. Most specifically when it comes to the truth of the word, of course. Yet many gray-haired folks become inflexible, proud, Arrogant, thinking that their way is the only way. So they do not take advice, and they certainly do not take, well, rebuke. They forget, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Some people don't take criticism well. That is constructive criticism. Lastly, Coleth says you're replaceable. (laughs) Regardless of how popular you are, there's always someone in the shadows to take your place. So this is this rags to riches story is, is a man who rose from obscurity to royalty. So this poor no this poor no name, this nobody, he comes out of nowhere and becomes a very significant somebody. And in this case, a king. Yet as time marches on, those who come later will not receive him. Verse 16, he becomes, you know, he's taken for granted. And eventually, you know what, beloved, the critical masses, you know what they say? What have you done for me lately? Right? I mean, that happens in churches. I have friends who are pastors who just, they're, 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 they're like placed in a uh, uh, grinder, a meat grinder, metaphorically, and just beaten down and ground up by the people. And that's the question. What have you done for me lately? 
Praise God, I don't have to deal with that. We're blessed. Now, for a a short time, he's extolled, he's praised, and then he's despised and forsaken. That's the picture. One point being made here, fame is fleeting. You know, a friend of mine who works in the entertainment industry, he said this about Hollywood. He said, in Hollywood, when your career's over, you're the last one to know about it. They've already determined that it's over for you. Right? The Hollywood media brings someone up, they make them a star, and the same media, the same people, cut them down, tear them down, and destroy them. It's common. So his point really is don't live for the praise of others. This this whole rival envy thing that we started off with um, leads to this ultimately. You know, today people um, live off the likes of others on their Facebook. They live off the fact that 12 people think what they do is so neat and great. But living and dwelling in the social media doesn't make you a social person by any stretch of the imagination. Amen? So if you're living off the likes on your little thing, that is vanity in striving after the wind. There's people who don't show up to church. And I I check in with people who do Facebook. I says, I want you to tell me how often so-and-so is on Facebook. It's unbelievable. And they can't even show up to church. They show up every six weeks because they know we'll come after them. I'm talking about those who can come. Sad. So here, to close up, it's easy to live off the praise and the honor of those we can see, right? Those we can see forgetting to live for the honor of the one we can't see. As we walk by what? Faith and not by sight. Nothing in this world as great as this world can be. Yeah, we live in a dark world, but we're, we're, we're the light of the world, amen? And look, the world can be very enjoyable. Not worldliness, but living in the world. It's supposed to be. But it cannot ultimately satisfy. That's the point. Only our creator who created it all and made us in his image can ultimately satisfy us. And he's the one that we often forget. We get all focused on pleasing everyone else but the one we can't see, but yet we know by faith. Amen? Paul said this, 2 Corinthians 4, For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Oh, the vanity of life without Christ. Amen? So may we do our work and do it well. May we enjoy it, all the while enjoying one another, and in working for the glory of God and not the toil of in the work of, of, of trying to live for the sake of rivalry and appearing greater than we are. Amen?